This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Hello, and welcome to My Life in Books, the show that sets out to read between the lines of an author's work and riffle through their back pages. Sherlock Holmes is probably the world's most famous literary detective, and his character continues to cast a long shadow over crime writers. But it's a challenge that my guest, Mick Finlay, seems to relish. His Victorian detective, William Arrowwood, is the poor man's Sherlock Holmes and makes no secret of his contempt and envy for his more famous rival. With the publication of the fourth book in the series, Arrowwood and the Meeting House Murders, I thought it was high time to bring its creator in for questioning. But first, let's meet William Arrowwood, as he's described at the beginning of the first book in the series. The reader is Malk Williams. South London, 1895. The very moment I walked in that morning, I could see the governor was in one of his tempers. His face was livid, his eyes puffy, his hair, least what remained on that scarred knuckle of a head, stuck out over one ear and lay flat with grease on the other side. He was an ugly sight, all right. I lingered by the door in case he threw his kettle at me again. Even from there, I could smell the overnight stink of gin on his foul breath. Sherlock Blooming Holmes, he bellowed, slamming his fist down on the side table. Everywhere I look, they're talking about that charlatan. I see, sir, I replied as meek as I could. My eyes tracked his hands as they swung this way and that, knowing that a cup, a pen, a piece of coal might quick as a flash get seized and hurled across the room at my head. If we had his cases, we'd be living in Belgravia, Barnet, he declared, his face so red I thought it might burst. We'd have a permanent suite in the Savoy. He dropped to his chair as if suddenly tuckered out. On the table next to his arm, I spied what had caused his temper. The Strand magazine, open at the latest of Dr Watson's adventures. Fearing he'd noticed me looking, I turned my attention to the fire. I'll put the tea on, I said. Do we have any appointments today? He nodded, gesturing in the air in a defeated manner. He'd shut his eyes. A lady's coming at midday. Very good, sir. He rubbed his temples. Get me some laudanum, Barnet, and hurry. I took a jug of scent from his shelf and sprayed his head. He moaned and waved me away, wincing as if I were lancing a boil. I'm ill, he complained. Tell her I'm indisposed. Tell her to come back tomorrow. Mick Finlay, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the strapline for the Arrowwood series goes, London society takes its problems to Sherlock Holmes. Everyone else goes to Arrowwood. And as we can hear from that description, he is very far from being a fastidious dapper detective like Sherlock Holmes. Yes, he is almost the uh, polar opposite, in fact, of Sherlock Holmes. He, in terms of his clientele, he deals with the poorer sections of community and the sort of cases that Sherlock didn't really 
deal with. So I, I suspect there's slightly more realistic crimes as well. But also as a, as a figure, he is, while Sherlock is athletic and a good fighter and knows a lot about science, Arrowwood is uh, not at all athletic. He's a bit of a glutton. He doesn't do any fighting or, and he's quite afraid of fighting. He's quite unhealthy. He's got a lot of physical <laughs> health conditions. And he doesn't really go for the scientific uh, approach to solving crimes. He, he tries to use Victorian ideas of psychology to try and get through his cases. Um, as a consequence of his clientele, he doesn't earn anything like the money of Arrowwood, so he lives in much less comfortable circumstances. Yes, behind a pudding shop in Coin Street. And he really is representative of just how poor the majority of London society in the 1890s were. Yeah, I I thought that was very important to try and make him have a lot of the same problems that his customers had. And for many people living in London at the time, existence was very much on a hand-to-mouth basis. And they, they were often employed in very precarious jobs where they could be got rid of at very short notice and suddenly not being able to pay their rent and get evicted or, or, or not being able to buy food or, or only being able to buy the cheapest food available, which was often a bit dangerous to eat. He, he's always worried about, about where he's going to earn his next um, shilling from. And so throughout the books, as he's trying to solve the cases, he's always sort of got this worry because he lives with his sister and they have taken in, I mean, as the novels progress, gradually his household gets larger. So he's more and more responsible for other people. So that, that, that also means he becomes more and more concerned about when he'll next get paid and so on. Yes, his life is far more chaotic than Holmes's, And Holmes, he both envies and despises, partly because every time Holmes appears in the newspapers, it's a reminder of his own fallen circumstances. And you have great fun deconstructing some of the more famous Holmes cases through the four novels. Yeah, that's something I really enjoy. I mean, it's not a huge part of the novels, but but usually at one point in the novel, Arrowwood will read a, a case in the newspapers that Sherlock Holmes has just solved and pick holes in his method of solving the case. And that's quite something that I, when I read the, the Holmes stories, I sort of find myself naturally doing. I, I often read it and think, no, no, that couldn't possibly be right. And, and he says that he's ruled out all the alternative explanations. So the only remaining explanation must be the truth. I think, no, he hasn't ruled. He's, there's plenty of other explanations he hasn't ruled out. So I enjoy having those reactions. I, by the way, I love the home stories. And I really enjoy the way Conan Doyle writes. And I, I do enjoy the way he constructs the, the crimes and the way Holmes solves them but they're not very realistic. And Arrowwood, I mean, they're real in, in, uh, in Arrowwood's world. So he gets enraged when he notices um, Holmes solving a, a case by what he sees as blind luck rather than deductive reasoning and intelligence. Yes, he describes Holmes as a detective of secret clues and flower beds at one point. <laughs> and he describes himself as an emotional detective rather than a deductive detective. And as you say, employs early psychological methods that you have clearly researched quite heavily. 
Yes, and, I, and that's been a very interesting part of writing the books. I, I, I actually work as a teacher of psychology in a university and I do research. That's my other job. But I hadn't really read about Victorian ideas of psychology until I started to write the Arrowwood stories. But they had a lot of interesting ideas and a lot of ideas that we still use. So, for example, William James is, is sort of thought of as the father of modern social psychology. And he was writing at the time. And a lot of his ideas, we still, you know, a lot of psychology is still based on that. But there were other sort of wilder ideas. So, for example, a French writer called Gustave Le Bon wrote a book about the psychology of crowds, where he believed that crowds became riotous and unruly because there was some kind of emotional contagion between members of the crowd, and that happened through magnetism. And that's an idea that Arrowwood really believes in, and he thinks that sometimes he sort of catches the emotion of the person he's talking to who might be a witness or might might be a suspect and he he thinks he can begin to feel what this witness is feeling themselves and so he uses some some ideas like that which turn out not to be as stupid as they sound because we actually do pick up people's emotions from a range of cues in their voice and and in the way they look and things like this and we pick these things up unconsciously. So it may not be through magnetism, but we're actually a lot better at picking up on people's emotions than we might think we are. So some of the things he's using, his explanation for using these techniques may, may be wrong, but, but actually they may work in certain ways. And what Arrowwood is best at is really getting inside people's minds and persuading them often by playing on their fears to spill the beans. Yes, I mean, that's another thing that I thought was quite important. And actually, this is I sort of took this idea from the Sherlock Holmes stories in that Sherlock Holmes often dresses up in disguises and manages to find out things by pretending to be somebody else. And I thought, well, I could use that, but in a slightly different way in the Arrowwood stories, where Arrowwood often, he works with a, a man called Norman Barnett, and he will often set up these sort of role plays with witnesses or with suspects when they're not giving him information, where they'll go in pretending to be somebody else and set up some elaborate role play, which draws the third person in in some way and sort of tricks them into giving them the information through these sort of elaborate little dramas that he invents. Yes, every Holmes needs his Watson and Norman Barnett is Arrowwood's Watson. He's a tough enforcer from the mean streets of London. And as we find through the series of books, he's a product of that grinding poverty that sometimes pushes people, decent people, into crime. And his other job is to calm the ruffled feathers of the police, who Arrowwood has a particular habit of rubbing up the wrong way. Yeah, um, Arrowwood is, finds it quite difficult to contain his own emotions. And the police are a constant source of frustration to him. They obstruct his inquiries. They try and stop him from carrying on with cases. But they also have their ideas of who are the suspects. Usually those ideas are wrong. And Aaron Arrowwood can see through the flaws in their reasoning um, for pursuing particular people. So Arrowwood is a quite is a very emotional man and, and will often <laughs> explode with anger or irritation in the face of these police officers who he really needs on his side. So Norman Barnett will always be the one who 
calms him down, apologizes to the police officer, you know, tries to make things better. And the police tend to like Norman Barnett more than they like Arrowwood. And they often suggest, you know, why don't you join the police? You'd make a very good police officer. And that's always a, a temptation for, for Barnett because um, life is hard working for Arrowwood. Yes, he doesn't get paid very often. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> he is our narrator and he in turn has rather a soft spot for Arrowwood's sister, Etty, who has been a nurse out in Afghanistan. And there's a, a wonderful play through all the books of the men trying to protect the little lady from the worst excesses of London criminal life. And we know that she's seen much worse on the battlefields of Afghanistan. She has. Etty is actually a formidable character. She is strong, she's clever, and she... She's got a much clearer sense of morality compared to Arrowwood. I mean, Arrowwood always eventually does the right thing. You know his heart's in the right place. But sometimes he sort of breaks the rules a bit. And, and, and often he breaks the rules in a way which he doesn't quite understand the effects of. But Etty can always see through that. And she brings him up on it and challenges him. She really doesn't need protection by Barnet or Arrowwood. Um, she works had a mission in a London slum where she visits the um, these very awful slums that existed in the time, full of criminality, poverty and disease. And she goes around visiting the houses there so she can very much take care of herself. And, and yes, Norman Barnett is in love with her and their relationship goes up and goes down and She's such an important character in the books. Um, she, she, you know, she, she does all sorts of practical things in some of the books as well. She sort of goes, puts herself into very dangerous situations when the case is stalled in order to get things moving again. There are several other members of the entourage, but probably the most significant is Neddy, who is a one-man representative of... Arrowwood's version of the Baker Street Irregulars, a young ragamuffin who does an awful lot of the running work for Arrowwood and seems constantly to be falling into danger. <laughs> well, the, these are crime novels, so I, I have to put somebody in danger. Um, but yeah, he's a very brave young lad, but he's quite unaware of the dangers he's, he's in. And he's often, he's told by Arrowwood very clearly, no, I want you to watch this person, but do not go into the house or, you know, don't leave this post. Don't speak to him if he speaks to you. But Neddy seems to forget all those instructions quite often, so gets himself into hot water. I wanted Arrowwood not, not to be a sort of a one-man band like Sherlock Holmes. I wanted his case to be solved by, by a, a small sort of, a, I suppose, modern family in the sense that they're not related to each other so a group of people solving cases um so there's a boy there's norman and there's um etty as well as as well as arrowwood and, and other people come in along the way but those are the sort of core of this crime fighting team and i you know i, I really enjoy playing around with the different relationships and how those change from case to case you know and it's interesting how if, if you're if a case is around a, a particular issue that will bring out the strengths of one person over another or the sensitivities of one person over another. So it's nice to have four people working on a case rather than just one. The latest book, Arrowwood and the Meeting House Murders, begins with a group of 
African travellers taking refuge in a Quaker meeting house to escape from a ruthless Victorian showman who's forcing them to appear in an ethnic exhibition at the London Aquarium. And this is where Arrowwood gets involved. Yeah, they turn up on his doorstep asking for some sort of help. And they're they're in a real bind because they have signed a contract in South Africa. They're, They're Zulus. And this is sorry. This is based on a real story, so this is not uh, entirely fiction. But they signed a contract in South Africa with a French showman and were taken to Paris to perform in what were called ethnic exhibitions, which were very common at the time. And this is when uh, members of a certain group or tribe would appear on stage in Europe and act out their um, dances and their other customs and sing songs and things like this for for ticket-paying audience. So anyway, they they came over to Paris to perform with a showman, and then the showman sold their contract to uh, an English showman who brought them to London and tried to get them to perform in the London Aquarium. Now, the true story part of this is that they they didn't want to perform in the London Aquarium, and they, they said they didn't understand the contract, and they appeared in a London magistrate's court saying that the showman had kept them prisoner in in a house and was refusing to let them go out and was overworking them. Well, they escaped from the house. Um, But um, because they didn't know anybody in London and because only one of them could actually speak English and his English was very poor, they didn't know where to go for help. So they went to a church and the, the, the vicar in the church suggested they go to Arrowwood for help. So that's where the story begins. And that part of the story is based on a true story from the 1870s that was reported in, a, in the newspapers at the time. So I just took that as my starting point. And Arrowwood agrees to help them hide from this showman who I've made much more ruthless than he actually was in everyday life. But unfortunately, they are found and uh, bad things happen next. Don't they just? And it is a wonderful opportunity for you to explore the collateral damage of the expansion of the British Empire and how it displaces Indigenous people and they wash up on British shores because even life as a refugee in Britain in the 1890s is better than having to put up with the rules that they face at home. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great irony. For example, in South Africa, the British rulers of South Africa invented a whole raft of laws, which they called the native laws, which only applied to black people. And it made life extremely difficult for black people. Not only did they lose most of their land, and certainly they lost the most productive land, which meant that a large proportion of the black population could no longer survive on the land that was left to them and had to go and do wage work in mines and in the docks and so on. But it also subjected them to this whole series of of appalling laws, such as you could be arrested if you refused to take a job that was offered to you by a white person, or if you worked for somewhere and you didn't want to work there anymore. It may perhaps it was very bad conditions, which they often were, particularly in the mines, and you left that job, you could be arrested for breaking your contract. So there was a whole range of laws, and they were so bad that in some years, a quarter of the black male population were put in prison. 
So if you live in a situation like that, where do you escape to? There were not many ways out of this if you were black. One was to go abroad and perform in an ethnic exhibition, which was an indignity in itself. But another um, alternative was to join um, a bandit gang. And there was a very famous bandit gang called the Ninevites, who were in operation around Cape Town, and in fact, who still exist in South Africa in the prisons system. And this, this gang is also part of the story and forms the backstory of these Zulu men who um, turn up for Arrowwood's help. You acknowledge just how much research does go into these books by listing your bibliography at the end of them. And clearly research is something that you're very passionate about. What comes first with the Arrowwood books? The research or an idea that you've found randomly, like this case of the four Africans? Um, It does vary from book to book. So the first book, When I started writing it, I didn't know anything about Victorian history, (laughs) but I had this idea for the character. And so I designed the opening of that book um, based on the way Raymond Chandler used to open his books. So in this book, a woman comes to the the detective asking for help. And and, um, as is the case in the Raymond Chandler books, there's an awful lot she's not telling the detective, which he only discovers later on in the book, and in fact is using him in a certain way to get a different end than to the end that he thinks that he's pursuing. So I just started with that. And after I'd written a couple of chapters of him meeting this person, then I realised, well, I have to find a crime here, and I don't know anything about history. And I, that is when I threw myself into Victorian history books. And in that case, after a lot of reading, I discovered this thing that was going on called the Maiden Tribute, which was the cross-channel sex trafficking trade between Britain and France. And I found my backstory there and and I read a huge amount about Victorian living, poverty um, and so on in order to actually start properly writing that book. And every book since then, I've, I've read another huge amount of Victorian history books. In the second book, it was slightly different. I wanted to write a book that involved people with learning disabilities. And I had, I in, in Britain, we've had a number of very disturbing cases of um, modern day slavery, which have been exposed and there's been a few documentaries on them. And this is when vulnerable people get entrapped by uh, families who are sort of living on the margins of society and are so psychologically enslaved, basically, and, and have to live in horrible conditions and work every day for these people and not get paid but are too frightened to leave. And and unfortunately, this this still happens today. And those cases gave me the idea for the second book. So I thought I would like to explore that in Victorian London. And of course, then I had to read a lot about the asylum system and um, psychiatric diagnosis of the day and the poor laws and so on. But that idea came from a modern day crime. And and as you say, the, 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 the fourth book very much came just by luck. I was reading... Um, a collection of articles from the Illustrated Police News from the 1800s, and I came across this case, and I knew, my goodness, this this case is full of so many issues. I'd love to get my teeth into it. It is a London that is teeming with life and dominated by slum landlords and people traffickers 
and gang bosses. And life is cheap. Those at the bottom of society, such as those with disabilities and the immigrant population, suffer most. And it's a London where we see a lot of disability on the streets, not least because, as Barnett points out at the beginning of the Meeting House murders, Britain has been at war his entire lifetime. I know. that's uh, When I heard about this never-ending war that the Victorians were engaged with, with the world, and I looked it up on Wikipedia, I, I just could not believe the number of battles year after year after year throughout the Victorian period. It, it is quite extraordinary. And Britain was fighting decade after decade. It was always at war with, and, and with groups from all over, from many, many different countries. It really struck me the number of soldiers that Britain was sending out to kill other people or be killed or be maimed themselves. Um, and then, of course, this does, does lead to there were many beggars in London who were ex-soldiers who were missing limbs or who had been blinded and so find it difficult to, to find regular jobs. So, yeah, very much so. If you go along out in the streets of London um, in this time, disability is very visible. It would be much more visible than it is now. And we're talking about a time before the welfare state. So there is no safety net to catch them at all. No, I mean, all they had was the asylum system, but that, but people, you know, really wanted to avoid that. And the, the workhouses, again, the workhouses were horrible places to, to be in, and people often would rather sleep on the streets and beg than go into the workhouses. Um, but certainly there was no proper rehabilitation for anybody or support for people to live independently. Something else that comes of this endless war is that London is also awash with guns, which make regular appearances in the Arrowwood books, particularly in the Meeting House murders. I oh, know that's another thing I didn't really realise reading the Sherlock Holmes stories. You always think of guns as a very modern invention, but of course they had so many wars um, and, and it had been going on for decades that guns inevitably were coming back and forth. There was trade in, in, in weapons, illegal trade in weapons. There was guns shipments being brought through Britain to being sent to the Confederate Army in the United States. There were soldiers bringing back weapons. And so, you know, if you're a reasonably well-connected criminal, you could buy weapons quite easily. So, yeah, guns are definitely a feature. I mean, it's a bit like the Wild West in the United States is that, you know, they, they might not have been part of polite society, but, you know, if you're, a, if you're a chancer, you may well have access to guns. And even more readily available than guns is cheap alcohol. We see Arrowwood fairly alcohol-soaked through the majority of the books, but so is everybody else. <laughs> Apart from Etty, of course, who <laughs> believes in temperance. Yes. Yeah, the temperance movement was quite strong, but I guess in Britain, we'd inherited this culture where water wasn't clean enough to drink. And so people relied on ale, um, much weaker than the ale we have nowadays. But they would drink ale throughout the day because it was safer than drinking water. But of course, we had the spirits as well. You know, the, you've, we, everybody has, uh, know, knows about the sort of problems with gin in London. But it sort of makes sense to me because for many people, this was a very, very hard life. England's cold. Many people didn't have the money to, to have heating. Food was often difficult to find if you were poor. And so 
it, it makes sense that 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 people may fall back into alcohol and of course the readily available drugs so versions of um, morphine and opium that were available as well um, readily available you know lots of people were addicted to morphine such as wilkie collins uh, the middle classes as well as the working classes but it, it does make sense you know if people li living in those conditions they may have been living in pain um, they may have been living in freezing conditions. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the people resorted to alcohol and drugs in those days. And having to make very, very difficult decisions over how they're going to eke out their few pennies. And your books have been compared to Dickens's in their description of life on the London streets. Although I don't think he was ever quite as honest as you are about just how much filth there is on the streets <laughs> and being poured out of windows from chamber pots. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting how different eras allows writers to point out different types of things. And yes, Dickens is such a wonderful writer. And you know, if I could write a, a tenth as good characters as him, I would be happy. But yeah, I guess he he doesn't sort of delve into the 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 dirt of London as much as Arrowwood books do, and and certainly Sherlock Holmes doesn't. I, I suppose it was an act of imagination. I had to try and think myself back to the Victorian London. I really tried to think, well, okay, what would I notice? What would a modern re reader notice if they were transported back to this time? And I did think it would be the smells and it would be the dirt, and it would be the food, for example, of the place. That would, we would be really struck with that. And it may be that somebody who was living there at the time wouldn't notice that stuff because it's just the way they live. But I, I wanted to describe things for the modern reader, just to show how different things might have been back then. And it was something that I hadn't really known that much about, Mick, but very much a fact of Victorian life and immensely popular. Yeah, they started out in the early Victorian periods as travelling fairground shows where people would pay a halfpenny or something to go into a tent and see people with disabilities or people with unusual features or people from other ethnicities on stage. Um, and these were often very rough and ready shows. Many of them were very exploitative. But apparently from reading the history of the freak shows, it seems that over the Victorian era, they gradually moved into fixed theatres and music halls and became run much more professionally with advertising. And showmen would go over to other countries and sign contracts with people and bring them back over to perform. It seems there's a great book, book called The Wonders, which, which describes the history of um, about 10 particular freak show performers and you know what happened to them over the course of their lives. And it does seem as though the, the later freak shows were slightly less exploitative. They may have been unpleasant for the performers to face jeering audiences and laughing audiences, but there, were, there was a sort of increasing respect for freak show performers over the era and, and, and to the extent that some, some of them began to manage themselves and became very rich through it. So there's a sort of big variety of freak shows and ethnic exhibitions over the um, 1800s. Uh, and and the, at the end, it, they weren't quite as bad as they were at the beginning, although there's, you, know, you might always question 
whether it's demeaning to to be a performer in one of those shows. And certainly from a 21st century point of view, it provides an insight into public reactions nowadays to reality TV or to people putting themselves out on social media and highlighting their own differences or otherness. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that that comparison, but you're absolutely right. You know, there's a savagery in some of the social media attacks on characters in in the, in the reality shows like Love Island and things like this. There is a real brutish response in some cases to those performers, which can get very ugly. And um, I think that that does, in a way, reflect what what performers might have experienced in in the fairground shows and things like that particularly as there was a lot of alcohol drunk at these occasions as well, which, which often makes people ruder and more vicious in their reactions. So there was a lot of heckling, for example, and people making jokes at the expense of the performers at these shows. And you give a very dignified voice to three of those performers in the Meeting House murders. We meet three young women who are trying to make a living from appearing in these freak shows and trying to take ownership of their own conditions. Yes. I mean, I I really avoid being preachy in my books. I mean, nobody wants to read a story and be preached to. So a sensitive issue like that, I, I always try and think of characters, you know, real humans behind these situations and how they would feel about it and how they would behave, how they would struggle with it, how they would fight it. And so, yeah, the the book features three women called Capaldi's Wonders, and they are based on real freak show performers of the late 1800s. And they are friends of the Zulu ethnic exhibition performers. So we see quite a lot of them. And we also see something of their struggles because the youngest one, who is portrayed in the advertising as the baboon girl because she has this uh, condition of, I think it's called trichoplasty, um, which enlarges part of her face. Um, and she performs like that. And we, we see a little bit about why she's decided to do that, but also the sort of compromises to her self-esteem involved in performing in that way. Um, she's doing it because she wants to earn enough money so that she and her boyfriend can set up a shop So she's got a very definite reason for doing it. And this is the only way she can earn that money. But on the other hand, she doesn't really have the emotional self-defense mechanisms to protect herself from the horrible things that the crowd say to her when she's on stage. So the book tries to get inside that a little bit and and see what it it might have been like for, for different freak show performers. And throughout the entire series, there is a great empathy for those who are struggling against adversity. Arrowwood, for all the fact that he is irascible and vain and actually rather an intellectual snob, is nothing if he is not humane. He can see the humanity in all those around him, sometimes even the criminals he's dealing with. Yes, and I think... It's partly his interest in psychology, but partly because of my interest in psychology. When you start to look at a person who's a member of a particular social category, we, we are, we're all inclined to endow them with the features that we think that social category has. And 
overlook the fact that every single person who, who is labelled in that way is an individual and is different from every other person who's labelled in that way. They may share a common treatment by society, but they are, everybody has their own individual personalities. And this is something that, you know, Arrowwood always sees, you know, and, and this is also which I, I really try and describe. I, I like writing stories with characters who are easily stigmatized or categorized. So my, my stories, Arrowwood stories, are not your standard crime novel stories. They're not about serial killers and things like that. They're about the very difficult choices people have to make the unpleasant people they may be exposed to as a result of the place they found themselves in society and these sorts of issues. This is the sort of thing I like to think about when I'm writing. And I find that trying to think about crime stories which are based around those issues, it's, more, it's sort of more than interesting, but it, it allows you to sort of explore a range of morals which you might not otherwise be able to explore in a, a standard crime novel. And do you think that's why you were attracted to write about the Victorian era? It is that mix of medieval and modern. The Victorians hadn't really worked out people's social worth or social rights. Yes, these things are very stark in the Victorian era. I based the novels in the Victorian era because I had the idea for Arrowwood before anything else and I knew he had to live in the same London as Sherlock so the the era was sort of decided for me but the more I read about it the more pleased I was that Arrowwood is located in this world because um, you're absolutely right it's a sort of a transition period between sort of a semi-savage Britain and and one which is more enlightened but it's right on the cusp I think it's it's before the welfare state happened. It's before ideas about the, the worth of every individual being equal, um, although that's, that's a Christian tenet, but before it's sort of um, put into law and, and made real. It's when the, the sort of the labor movement started up, the trade union movement. It's when the Quakers and others were campaigning against wars and colonialism and trying to improve the conditions of the poor. So people were definitely talking about these things, but I think in in a way that missed a lot, you know, and that is particularly the case with disability and race, I think particularly. It makes it difficult to write about because you're encountering a lot of attitudes which are repugnant nowadays, but it does allow you to think about characters and how they may try and work their own way through these contradictions and uncertainties. And these are the areas that, as you say, you teach as a psychology professor at a British university. And I was looking down the rest of your CV, and I see that you spent much of your childhood in Canada. Yes, I did. Yeah. When I was about three years old, my parents moved us to Canada to Vancouver so I spent we spent a few years in Vancouver then they moved back to Scotland for a couple of years and then they moved back to Vancouver again so I lived in North Van and in West Van Um, I went to kindergarten in Vancouver when I was about nine I think we moved then to the United States where we lived for a year before moving finally to England 
So yeah, I've never been back to Canada, but I have very warm memories of it. If anybody's listening who lives in Vancouver, I remember fishing off the pier at Dunderave. Um, and I was in the Dolphin Outdoor Swim Club in Vancouver. I have many memories. I'd love to go back one day and sort of have a tour of where I used to live and the school and everything. Um, but yeah, I have not been back for over 40 years. Well, maybe an Arrowwood book tour across Canada beckons. That would be great. I also saw that you had probably the best training to be a street crime novelist by working as a market trader in London for five years. Yes, and that's not a market trader in the futures market or the stock market. It's actually on the, the a street market. Um, in London, we have lots of street markets, but there's one called Portobello Road, which is a fantastic street market. And on, at the weekends, it, it's huge. It's, it has antiques. It's got fashion. It's got secondhand clothes, fruit and veg furniture and things like this but I sold t-shirts on the market for five years and I also had a stall on Greenwich Market which is um, a similar market south of the river Um, and uh, it was a real education I mean I come from a middle class background I mean this was a really raw way of earning my money I think I learned the value of money because every t-shirt I sold I knew how much profit I was making I knew how much my rent was for the stall um, I knew how much I had to pay my rent on my flat. So every time somebody bartered with me, it was, you know, every pound was important. Um, and throughout so throughout the day, I may sell, you know, 40 or 50 T-shirts, but every single one of them, I was calculating, okay, you know, can I afford to give this T-shirt for that price with this profit? And I was victimized by a gang of thieves for um, a few months, and I had hundreds and hundreds of pounds of T-shirts stolen from them. I knew who the pickpockets in the market were. It, got, it was a very crowded market and lots of tourists came there um, and there was a band of pickpockets. And so, I, you know, it was, a, it was a, a, a great experience for writing crime novels, I have to say. Brilliant training for your future career as a crime novelist. Are you working on a fifth Arrowwood book? Well, I am working on a book, but I'm taking a break from the Arrowwood series and I am writing a book set in the present day just to give you a bit of a taster it's to do with narcissism policy think tanks and boarding schools how very topical (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) are you enjoying it as much as being steeped in victorian london or are you missing the pudding shop and the chamber pots i am really missing the chamber pots and the pudding and I, i i am really missing actually working out what's next going to happen between Etty and, and Norman Barnett. Actually, that's what I keep thinking about. But I, I am really enjoying writing about the present day, partly because it flows more quickly because I don't have to check details like, you know, would they have had gas in this place <laughs> at the time? You know, because it's my world, I don't have to do any of that checking. But I'm enjoying writing it. It is a sort of crime-based novel, but I am certainly missing the the cast of characters from Arrowwood's London. Well, I for one will be hoping that Arrowwood and Barnet make a swift return, but I will look forward to the new book. Does it have a working title yet? Oh, no, it doesn't. And and even if it did, every single title I've chosen for my Arrowwood books was was changed by my publishers. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not very good at inventing titles. 
So far, Mick, we've discussed the novels that you've written. Now, I'd like to hear about some of the titles that have resonated with you. It's time for The Books of Your Life. So was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes, quite a few, but the one I'm going to give today is called The Ginger Man by J.P. Donlevy. And this was a book that was published in 1955 and banned in the United States and Ireland for obscenity. And strangely enough, it was my mother who gave it to me, who wasn't a big fan of obscenity, I have to say, but she gave it to me for a birthday present because she, I think she'd seen it had won a prize. She didn't read it herself, but I absolutely loved it. It's a wild book about a rascal who was living in Dublin in 1947, a really likable character who is a drinker and a chancer. And the book is funny and poetic. And I think also it's the first book that I'd read that had really played with form. So um, lots of the chapters end with maybe two lines of poetry, which is something that Don Levy does in his, a lot of his other books as well. Um, and he also switches from first person to third person and uses a lot of short sentences in a way that I hadn't sort of noticed before in other books. And this book has been described as one of the great post-war comic novels. And, and I, I, loved, I loved it. It made a big impression to me just because it was such fun to read. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Yes. Now, I haven't actually reread this book, but I, this is the one I think I would choose. It's a book of short stories called Close Range by Annie Proulx. Now, this is a book of short stories that was published in 1999. And one of the stories is actually the story of Brokeback Mountain, which became a film. Now, I, I think short stories are probably a good choice for a rainy day inside because they give a sort of variety that you might not get in the novel. And all the stories in this book are set in rural Wyoming, which is a bleak and unforgiving landscape full of bright and tragic characters. So this book really takes you away from where you are at the time, and it sets you down in the plains and the hills of the American landscape with absolutely beautiful descriptions. The characters are well drawn, and she's got a way of depicting the depth of relationships that isn't laboured, but is quite profound. Um, it's about people struggling in a difficult landscape, but in it you see human spirit, resilience and complexity. And I, I guess what, another thing that, that made me, is why I like this book, is that I, I do, I am a fan of Westerns um, and country music. So this type of landscape is a real appeal to me. Brilliant choice. Uh, it's just an amazing collection of short stories, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. She's got that kind of uh, Steinbeck gift with just being able to make you cry unexpectedly as well. Yeah, I think, so. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and making seemingly unsympathetic characters, making you really, really sort of root for them. Absolutely. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, it's a book that I am almost finished. I've got one story to go, but it's another book of short stories. But these ones are by Shirley Jackson. And this book is called Dark Tales. Now, I've never read Shirley Jackson stories, but I, I decided to read after seeing a, a recent film that depicts a period in her life. Shirley Jackson was born in 1916 and died in 1965. And this collection of stories are, are set in the United States from the 1940s to the 1960s. And all of the stories in this book have some degree of darkness in the often everyday lives of small town America. 
And, and it's a really varied collection. So there's some of them are, are more like fairy tales. Some of them are like ghost stories. Others are about manipulation or psychological uh, sort of glitches, which make people misunderstand the world. And I have really enjoyed reading these stories and getting to know small town America in a way that I hadn't before. Mick Finlay, thank you so much for sharing your love of reading with the listeners today and your insights into the life of William Arrowwood, your historical detective. I've had a great time with you. Thanks a lot, Red. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Mick Finlay, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit ami.ca.